Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Inputs, as distinct from outputs and outcomes, are also relevant, and it's becoming an area of far greater study than it's been before, just as outcomes is becoming much more the focus. So what do I mean by inputs? It can mean everything from where people live. It can mean you know where the courthouses are, what the travel is like, uh, what people's health is like. What we chose to study in the Justice Index are what the laws are like. And to me, this is the most obvious thing in the world that we need to know, because if one jurisdiction has a justice system that's cruel and inhumane relative to another, that might, one would think, alter people's experience of the justice system. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. In this episode, we're going to talk about civil legal aid data. How is it collected? Why do we need it? And how can we best make use of it? To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Logan Cornett is the Director of Research at the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, or IELTS, at the University of Denver. David Udell is the Executive Director for the National Center for Access to Justice at Fordham University School of Law. And Jim Sandman is a distinguished lecturer and senior consultant to the Future of the Profession Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He is also the President Emeritus of the Legal Services Corporation. Thank you all for being with us today. Jim, I wanted to start with you to set some context for this discussion about legal aid data. You joined LSC as president back in 2011, and I'm curious to what the state of civil legal justice data was when you took that role, both inside legal aid organizations and in the community more generally. What I found was a lot of data about what are called outputs and almost no data about what are called outcomes. Output data includes numbers like number of cases closed, number of people in households served by legal aid organizations, number of uh, types of cases handled, level of service provided, did the person get brief advice at counsel or was the case taken to trial, number of legal aid attorneys employed, that's output data. Outcomes data has to do with what happened as the result of the service that the legal aid organization provided. It has to do with things like number of evictions avoided or uh, foreclosures averted, the dollar value of benefits obtained, the number of protection orders obtained for people who were subject to abuse, uh, the dollar value of child custody payments obtained. None of that type of data, outcomes data, was required to be reported to the Legal Services Corporation. Everything that was reported to LSC by the 136 grantees that we had at the time was in the form of output data. I thought we were missing something really important. Logan, as far as that missing information is concerned, you are the one sole non-lawyer on this discussion. You're actually doing the work when it comes to data collection. Is the type of information that Jim is talking about, this outcome data, as he put it, is that hard to collect? Like what, what's the challenge to actually going out and getting that type of data? So I think it can come with a number of challenges, um, particularly if you are 
sort of focusing on what we call, you know, people-centered data. So going out and understanding people's perspectives on their experiences, how they experienced the various processes, and those kinds of things. That can be really both time-consuming, consuming in terms of human resources needed to conduct that kind of research, and also really expensive data to gather as well. And David, I know that you've written specifically around outcome data And so to bring you into this conversation, I'm curious, what do you see has changed? You've been at this for a long time, and we seem to have more and more outcome data as we move forward. And I'm curious what you see as the machinations that have got us here. Well, I guess I want to say that I speak as a former uh, civil legal aid lawyer, and so I've had the experience of working in organizations providing direct legal services to people. You know, back in the day when I was doing that work, I never would have been interested in seeing research funded. It just seems so obvious to me that as a legal aid lawyer, we had a huge impact in people's lives, and I wouldn't have wanted to see money or resources directed at doing research about whether we actually had an effect. I guess I've come a long way since then, and to your specific question, I think the community has come a long way, still has a long way to go. I think people recognize now that it's one thing to feel that you have an effect in people's lives through your work, and it's another thing to be able to demonstrate that to yourselves, to your family, to potential funders, to the society at large, and to know in fact that you are having the impact that you want to have and you think people deserve to have in their lives. Legal aid lawyers spend some sleepless nights, I think, wondering about some of the forms of service delivery that they're engaged in. For example, providing brief advice to people or discrete unbundled assistance on specific tasks. And they want to know, just as everybody wants to know, to what degree do those interventions have an effect? And so a lot of work is being done. I think what Jim did at the Legal Services Corporation to push programs to confront the question of outcomes and how could they track data that would better reveal outcomes actually did have a big effect. I think at the time it seemed like maybe it didn't and programs were resistant and there are a lot of problems around tracking outcomes. But I actually think a lot of programs have made big strides in starting to focus on collecting data about what actually happened in the case. And even where they're providing brief service, they want to know what did the person who they provided their service to actually end up doing in their case as a result of getting that advice or assistance. So I I think a lot of work's um, being done and a lot more needs to be done. And I do think it's very important to investigate and track and report outcomes. You touched on something that I anticipated bringing up a little bit later, but since the segue is now in front of us, I'm going to take it. Both for David and Jim, you are attorneys, and David, you said back in the day when you were a legal aid attorney, you wouldn't be concerned with data. So as lawyers, which is an educational process that does not put much emphasis on data, what made you true believers? And David, I'll, I'll start with you. You know, there's, there's so many different influences, I guess, on how I think about data You know, when I was young, I I worked in a a science laboratory uh, that was collecting data about uh, the influence of hormones on whether roosters could create the proteins necessary to make eggs, if you could switch on the gene. And so I've always had an interest in it. And I think over the years, I've just become so much more aware of what goes on in the medical sector. And there's a lot of problems with data collection in the medical sector. But the idea that you could keep track of the number of times that patients are infected or you could track data on hygiene in hospitals, that you could rank hospitals 
based on how they perform that you could look at infant mortality, for example, or maternal mortality, those kinds of factors and how incredibly influential they are in redirecting resources to solve problems compels the mind, I think, and makes you wonder what could we do in law that would be similar and particularly on access to justice. I don't want to go on too long, but I'll say one more thing, which is that in my job at the Brennan Center, I was exposed to the idea of using data to track the performance of states and improving their election machinery so that votes would be accurately counted. And it seemed to me that if we could compare data state to state on election machinery, we could do it the same on judicial court machinery and that we should try to do that. And Jim, what about you? You went from big law attorney for most of your career and now a champion of data in the legal aid system. How did that evolution unfold? I made an intermediate stop on my way from big law to the Legal Services Corporation. I served as general counsel of the District of Columbia Public Schools. That was a data-rich environment. We had data every day, every week, and a first-rate chief data analyst, Erin McGoldrick was her name. And I saw in that environment the difference that strong data could make in driving informed decision-making. I'd never had that experience in the practice of law before, but I got it there. When I came to LSC, I realized two things that emphasize the importance of, of having stronger data. First, in 2011, the effects of the Great Recession were still being felt. Funding had fallen, and as is always the case, but especially so then, legal aid organizations were badly underfunded. One of the most difficult decisions an executive director of a legal aid organization needs to make is whom to serve and what level of service to provide. Lots of people have to be turned away. And of those who are accepted for service, some people get only brief advice and counsel, others get extended service. To make informed decisions about whom to serve, with what level of service, you need good data. Let me give you an example that came to me after two months on the job. I met Colleen Cotter, the executive director of the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. And she told me that she had recently hired a full-time data analyst. I thought that was fascinating. At the time when legal aid organizations were stretched so thin, I would have thought that if an organization had the money to do an additional hire, they would reflexively hire one more lawyer. But Colleen didn't do that. She hired a data analyst, and she did it for two reasons. She wanted help in guiding her about whom to serve and what level of service to provide, and she wanted to be able to make a better case to her funders. She was convinced that a data analyst would pay for herself or himself with the information they'd be able to generate about the impact that she was having. She gave an example. This was at the height of the foreclosure crisis. The Legal Aid Society of Cleveland was handling many foreclosure cases. They were able, because they had good data collection practices in place, to correlate the results they achieved in the foreclosure cases they handled and the income levels of the clients they had served. What the data showed was that if a client had an income at or below 75% of the federal poverty guideline, they were never able to save the home. Never. The reason should be self-evident, the client just didn't have enough money and there was no legal solution, no negotiation that was going to change that. 
As a result of that data, Colleen made the decision that they would focus their foreclosure work on people who had incomes above 75% of the federal poverty guideline. You might disagree with that decision. There are important access to justice reasons why you might want to provide help to everybody. But wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to make that decision with your eyes open? So I thought that was a great example of the value of data. The second thing I realized was something implicit in what Colleen had said. Funders care a lot more about outcomes than they do about outputs. Outputs is a very 20th century way of measuring impact. The biggest funder of the Legal Services Corporation is the federal government. And the Obama administration Office of Management and Budget had a requirement that when you were putting in a request for funding, you needed to provide evidence of your impact, hard facts to show what difference prior funding had made. And I felt that we didn't have strong enough evidence to be able to respond to OMB's requirements. That's just an example. Many other funders, if they don't require it, want data about outcomes. So to make a good funding case, you want strong data. On this idea of outcomes and, and how people are experiencing the legal system, Logan, I wanted to turn back to you because IELTS just published a justice needs and satisfaction survey, which surveyed over 10,000 Americans about their experience in the civil legal system. And first off, I want to ask a methods approach. Why was the survey the right approach to this type of research? I don't know that there is ever actually a right approach to this kind of data. And I think in an ideal world, we would actually collect data in a whole bunch of different ways, asking the same research questions with the hope that we would converge on a set of conclusions. You know, triangulation is what we call that. For this particular study, though, we landed on um, an online survey for a few different reasons, one of them being consistency with the approach that Hill, the organization in the Netherlands that we partnered with, consistency with their approach. They had done actually in-person surveys in a number of other countries, but that in-person surveys were not going to be feasible here, particularly because of the number of people we wanted to talk to. We wanted to get 10,000 responses and doing that in a you know, a one-on-one -on -one setting would have taken us years to accomplish and, and a lot more financial resources, frankly, than we had. So we landed on online surveys for that reason. And, you know, another huge challenge with doing surveys of any kind, but, uh, you know, online surveys in particular is making sure that the vendor that you go with who is going to, you know, provide you access to participants is one that uses a probability sampling approach rather than opt-in online panel, because that can introduce all kinds of bias into your results. So it's important to be cognizant of those issues, and we certainly were in our study. So how do you avoid creating that type of bias within the sample to, to create a more uh, holistic survey? So there are a few different ways you can do that. Um, I think the, the main thing is to be really cognizant of the panel vendor that you're going through, right? This is the company that's going to provide you with your um, sample of respondents. And one important consideration there is making sure that the vendor that you go with uses a uh, probability sampling or probability-based sampling method to obtain their panel, right? Because that's going to help you minimize bias and make sure that your results are as generalizable um, 
as possible. Now, one thing that you mentioned is potentially missing some people who don't have online access and that kind of thing. And one thing that we were really also sensitive to as we were in the early stages of pulling our methodology together was making sure that the panel vendor that we went with provided internet access to members of their panel who would not otherwise have it. The company that we went with provided hotspots and tablets for the specific purpose of completing online surveys for the panel. So we were able to capture that population. Now, David, I want to bring your data work into the discussion by creating a, a comparison at your center. You run what's called the Justice Index, which is a different approach. It looks at policy in institutions as opposed to uh, individual people that like uh, have Logan had surveyed for aisles. And I'm curious to know like, why, why this approach and how you've decided to collect data on the civil legal aid system. I think I try to answer that. I couple ways. First, you know, Jim has emphasized in this conversation the importance of tracking outcomes, and we've written about that and studied it, and I, I agree with that. But what Jim didn't mention and what I haven't, uh, and Logan hasn't mentioned, is that inputs as distinct from outputs and outcomes are also relevant, and it's becoming an area of far greater study than it's been before, just as outcomes is becoming much more the focus. So what do I mean by inputs? It can mean everything from where people live to what kinds of problems they encounter in their lives, as Logan uh, and the Hill Isle study documents in a very rigorous way. It can mean you know, where the courthouses are, what the travel is like, uh, what people's health is like. What we chose to study in the Justice Index are what the laws are like. And to me, this is the most obvious thing in the world that we need to know, because if one jurisdiction has a justice system that's cruel and inhumane relative to another, that might, one would think, alter people's experience of the justice system in their particular part of the world that they inhabit. So for example, if landlords are free to change the locks on doors with impunity, if there's no criminal sanction against that, or if they don't have to return security deposits, if we don't have to have juries in a district, or if the rules on debt collection don't require proper service, or if you don't not entitled to a lawyer as compared to a jurisdiction where you are entitled, it's a very different justice system that you as an individual encounter. And so we wanted to take a look at some of the laws that are pertinent and some of the policies that are pertinent to what we think are pertinent to outcomes in cases. And we started not by looking at the substantive law so much, but rather looking at how many attorneys are present for poor people in each state? And we did a count of the number of civil legal aid attorneys in every state. We also looked at some laws that, you know, I think of as legislatively driven, like right to counsel laws. We track a number of civil right to counsel laws, family neglect proceedings, and uh, we've started to keep track in this latest iteration of the Justice Index of right to counsel laws in the context of eviction from homes. But uh, we also look at things in the, in the area of self-help, the area of language access, the area of disability access, to see whether, for example, in self-help, is there e-filing? And are judges instructed that they have to tell litigants who don't have lawyers about the dispositive issue in the case and the potentially dispositive uh, evidentiary material that's needed in the case? And on uh, language access and disability access, we track a bunch of different policy benchmarks. And, the benchmarks we choose are all uh, selected by us, but with consultation with experts in the field. And so we think we have a pretty good set of uh, measures 
to look at whether laws and policies are either present or absent in a state and whether they, as a result, give rise to a better or worse environment or infrastructure of justice that's likely to promote access to justice. And then we rank the states where the organization with a temerity to actually rank the states and compare them one to the next based on how good that policy environment is for assuring access to justice. I wonder then, Jim, you know, we're talking about how when you started, you knew how many attorneys there were, how many cases were being closed, and then you moved to more outcome-based approach. We hear about the survey from Isles that Logan was a part of and, and David's look at laws and policies that are affecting these issues. I'm curious from your perspective, is there anything out there that we haven't been able to collect yet? We haven't been uh, figured out a way to put a metric down on, on issues that you think are important for this subject? I think we've thought about the possibilities, but we're still woefully short of data. We need all of the data that's, that's been described, but let me give you some examples of, of things that are missing. Uh, you can't get accurate information nationally today on the number of people appearing in our courts without a lawyer, the number of unrepresented litigants. That's tracked very inconsistently, if at all, from one state to another, one county to another. That's a really important number to know to get a, an assessment of how our justice system is or isn't working and what the impact might be of not being able to afford a lawyer. It's very difficult to get real-time data on case filings like evictions. There's been a lot of publicity recently about an eviction tsunami, about an increase in evictions as the moratoria that were enacted during the pandemic have expired. But to get real-time data about what's happening is, is very hard. Uh, in some places, you can't even get the historical data. Uh, let alone real-time data. That was very much true following the recession with information about foreclosures. Uh, you want to know what's, uh, what's going on. Another example where there is some data but not nearly enough uh, is in the form of data about randomized controlled trials. Randomized controlled trials are most often associated with medicine, with pharmaceuticals, uh, where when testing something like, say, a COVID vaccine, uh, you test the vaccine against a placebo uh, or against an unvaccinated uh, population to see whether it works or not. Law uh, does very little research like that, but there is uh, what's called the Access to Justice Lab at Harvard Law School run by Jib Greiner that does randomized controlled trials to test what kind of interventions in the form of the de delivery of legal services might make a difference uh, to people. He's, he's done, for example, research on how you can most effectively give people notice of the requirement that they respond to a complaint that's been filed against them and show up in court, as opposed to defaulting by not responding or by not showing up and having a judgment automatically entered against them. And he's tested different forms of communication that might stimulate a response where experience shows and where um, random testing shows that, that people don't respond. I think that work is terrific, that that's giving you a roadmap to what works and, and how we might be able to provide more effective assistance. 
Unfortunately, randomized controlled trials are expensive and time-consuming and often focused on a very particular form of intervention that may not be, or your information may not be transferable to other contexts. But when, when you look at something like how to give notice of, effectively, you can probably uh, make that applicable across a number of different kinds of proceedings and not just to the type of proceedings where you did the test. So I, I don't get me started. There are lots of lots more data that we need. That's interesting. I, I wanted to bring up something that I'm seeing happening in the criminal justice reform world, organizations like the Arnold Foundation and Measures for Justice, which go state by state collecting criminal justice data, have come out and called for the DOJ to essentially put together a nationwide collection system for this type of data that is missing on the criminal side. And so, Jim, uh, having been had a seat at the table at the kind of the national level on these topics, just to follow up, like, to fill that gap, is, is this advocacy that we're seeing on the criminal reform side something that the civil reform side should be seeing as well? Does DOJ have a role uh, to be collecting this data that you've pointed out is missing? Yes, yes, yes. And the, the, the most efficient way of getting it that I can think of quickly is to require the collection of data as a condition of grants that the Justice Department makes to state court systems. Uh, the, the Justice Department regularly makes all different kinds of grants to state court systems. If they made it a condition of their grant that to get this money, you have to collect this type of information that would uh, provide an incentive for states to do what they haven't done previously. Yes. And, and David, just following up on that, I personally came to civil legal aid advocacy after doing criminal justice reform. And so I'm just getting to this issue myself. But the more I spend time on the civil side, the less I understand why we treat these two advocacy worlds separately, as if they're oil in water. So is it a mistake that we're not having a discussion about just collecting national justice data, period? Forget the civil criminal divide? Like, Should we be thinking about this more holistically? So the answer is, uh you know, a thousand percent yes, that the civil and criminal justice distinctions are increasingly understood to be artificial, I would say. Historically, there are a lot of things that drive the distinction. I know when I was a civil legal aid lawyer that there was a kind of prejudice against uh, having people with criminal records or criminal matters be seen in the office that there was sort of a stain associated with contact with the criminal justice system. And I work in New York City. And I think that is such an antique thing at this point. I mean, we've had decades of revelation about inappropriate and excessive arrests and charging. And these days, any civil legal aid office working with a, a marginalized or low-income community sees people who all the time have, have had contact with the criminal justice system. So that's one thing that's sort of changed and I think has made it easier to see from the civil side, the connectivity with the criminal justice system. But on the criminal side, there's long been a holistic defense movement. On the civil side, there hasn't been much of a holistic civil legal aid movement that would seek to confront and address and try to help resolve the criminal charges that may be pending uh, in a person's life, even while they're also being evicted from their home or losing their job or having uh, family problems. So there's a lot of uh, connection and overlap in the client population. And just conceptually also, I think people enter the criminal justice system many times because of problems they've had on the civil side. 
You know, if you lose your home in an unfair eviction proceeding and end up on the streets and having contact with police officers or disputes with strangers because you're homeless, that's a pathway. It's an empirically testable pathway that hasn't been looked at much yet, but it just seems that 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 is a way into a carceral system. Just as we recognize on the criminal side that reentry is so important and that people need stable jobs, homes, family relationships in order to not recidivate, we need to look at the front end of that and understand that all those same pressures push people into the criminal justice system. And last thing I'll say is certainly in the activist community, there's an increasing awareness that the criminal justice movement with its focus on costs and scholarship and um, mainstream messaging through uh, media, through television shows and films, that uh, with its understanding of the history of racial injustice and the, the legacy of racism, that all of that work that's been done there needs to be done on the civil side to much better understand how race infects the decision-making around predatory lending and uh, redlining. And you know, even the diversity of the bench is an important thing to look at. And so there, there are lots of different ways in which the conversation needs to intersect. And, you know, we're all about trying to do that work, but it's, it's a lot of work that needs to be done. Logan, I want to shift the, the conversation a little bit as we begin to wrap up. And one of the things David just talked about was learning these lessons from the criminal side of the house uh, in the civil law area. And one of the things I think a lot about when it comes to data and policing is what happens when you try to start optimizing for certain metrics. The Bill Bratton approach to the NYPD in the 90s that was wrapped around broken policing, the idea that you make a lot of small arrests around more uh, quality of life crimes, then that will trickle up was the argument. And, and of course, that's now being heavily debated of whether or not that was true. But what had ended up happening was that this metric-based approach meant the NYPD was out there trying to run certain arrest numbers every month to show that they were doing their job. That's what they were optimizing for as an agency. So... My question to you, and this is broad, uh, so feel free to, to work this as you wish. Could you see a reality where the civil legal aid world becomes over-reliant on data and metrics to the point that it could begin to hurt itself? And if so, how do we make sure that doesn't become our future? My first thought is that, yes, absolutely, I think that's a possibility. But what's important to keep us focused as we continue to collect data and collect new kinds of data is making sure that the right stakeholders are at the table. And for me, that absolutely includes the people who utilize the justice system, making sure that we engage them however we can and making sure that the metrics we are collecting are the right ones, the ones that matter to them and the ones that impact their lives the most. And of course, they're not the only stakeholders, but I think they have historically been excluded from the table. My second thought there is sort of building on something that Jim was saying just a minute ago, and just real quick, an enthusiastic yes to all of the things he was saying about uh, the missing data and our need for things like RCTs and consistent collection of court docket data. But, but another piece that I think is missing and speaks to your question, Jason, is uh, qualitative data. So sort of moving away from metrics, not entirely, but just in this sort of one lane, right, and understanding what people's, you know, lived experiences are. Um, and I think that qualitative data can be particularly helpful when it comes to understanding the experiences of, for example, traditionally underserved populations, 
uh, or traditionally disadvantaged populations, as well as groups with intersectionalities. And I, I think that data is otherwise really difficult to get at. Jim, as Logan's talking about collecting more quantitative and qualitative data in this space, which if the current trend holds is what's going to happen uh, and more groups and more academics and more organizations like Logan's are going to focus on these topics. How do we keep ourselves from being redundant in these efforts and making sure that we're not replicating other people's work? Or does that even matter at this point? Do we just need to be collecting everything where if, even if it, it may be redundant? It's a risk. It's, it's actually kind of a problem I'd like to have. Uh, I, I don't think there's a, there's a big risk of that as a practical matter uh, currently. But you do raise an important point. There is no national clearinghouse of information about who's collecting what, how. People do have a sense of it, but, but it's not organized in an easily accessible way. You don't can't have a lot of confidence that what you're doing isn't duplicative of, of what's being done elsewhere. Maybe the bigger risk is, um, is that you're, you're not doing it as well as it's being done elsewhere. So for example, if you're collecting data in your state uh, about the, ju the justice system, you're likely to know who's collecting data in your, in your state without having to have some fancy clearinghouse. But what you may not know is how, it, how the same type of data collection is being approached and done better in another state or a county that, that you haven't heard about. Uh, I, I just don't have a high level of confidence that the best of in, innovation is made promptly available to, to people to benefit from. So uh, some kind of uh, national clearinghouse of information about who's collecting what and how could be very useful. And with that look into the future, Jim, I want to thank you all for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed today, check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.